Welcome to Seize Your Midlife, the podcast exclusively for midlife women. I'm your host, Bree Schumacher. We are going to dive into all the things from health and hormones to beauty and wellness. We'll be asking the question, what's my midlife purpose? And what am I going to do with the rest of my life? We'll also be interviewing women who've taken leaps or made U-turns in midlife. This conversation is going to be engaging, sometimes educational, a little bit funny, and always real. It is my sincere hope that you find your midlife purpose and lead your most fulfilling life. So join us on this journey to seize your midlife. Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Seize Your Midlife. I am so grateful that you're here today, and I'm excited that you are going to be joining in on today's conversation. So Katie Walters is a mom of seven. You did not hear that wrong. I said seven. She is a community leader and a church leader. She is the founder and visionary of the clothing line, Francis and Benedict, and she even has her master's in counseling. This woman has truly led multiple lives in one, and frankly, she's just downright amazing. Some of the things she shared are actually pretty surprising, but I am going to let you hear it from her, not from me. So welcome to Seize Your Midlife, Katie. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I love this podcast and um just so grateful to be able to be on and share with you today. It's going to be it's going to be fun. We're going to have fun together. It is going to be fun and I don't know when everyone else is listening, but for us this is a Monday morning and this is a fun way to kick off the week. So I'm excited for that. So the first question I ask everybody on the podcast which is only appropriate on this podcast, is how old are you? I am 40 years old, turning 41 this year. 40. So you are on the early stage of midlife. So that's (laughs) awesome. And where are you right now? I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. All right. Everybody, I think here listening to that is probably jealous that you live in Charleston (laughs) because it's such a great place to live. Will you just tell everyone, are you originally from South Carolina? No, I'm actually originally from Charlotte, close to where you are, and grew up there and then went to school, went to college in South Carolina at the University of South Carolina and have been in some part of South Carolina ever since, which I did not, you know, see that happening for sure. (laughs) Well, and you kind of told me it was a little bit of a rough ride getting to college. Will you talk just a little bit about your high school self and how you ended up at University of South Carolina. Oh, man. Well, we've been talking about it a good bit in my family because my daughter is graduating. And she were, so we're in graduation week. And my mom, she would call me rebellious, strong-willed, wild child. But I definitely, you know, my parents divorced when I was six. And I think out of that kind of changing of the family unit, a lot of children kind of go through different experiences. But my dad actually moved overseas shortly after that. And so I think just a lot of my childhood, if I had to describe it, I was probably living out of some 
abandonment wounds. And, and also I've, I learned this quote one time that said, rebels don't make trouble, but trouble creates rebels. (laughs) (laughs) True. But there is that rebel spirit in me for sure that when there is trouble in the waters, I, you know, just really went my own way, did kind of had this attitude of like viva la day. And then one of my closest friends died when I was a junior in high school. And that just really wrecked me. I ended up dropping out for about a semester, just was, you know, in a crowd that um, at some point I looked around and realized like, this is more of a dangerous crowd (laughs) than I was in prior. And I just knew I need to get out and go to college somewhere where I don't know anyone, or I don't know that I'm going to make it in four years of college. At this point, I just was not thriving kind of in any way. So that's where I started when I got to college. My mom threw a party when I actually left for college because she was like, oh, thank God. The girl's <laughs> out of my house, you know? It's so opposite to me who's been like grieving all year, my daughter leaving. My mom was like, there were there was not one tear shed, a happy tear that you were gone. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, going to University of South Carolina and leaving that crowd really does end up changing your life. And you talked a little bit about how meeting Kelly Palfrey, who for those of you listening, I interviewed Kelly. I think it was in episode six. She's the artist from South Carolina. And if you haven't listened, you should definitely go back and listen because she's really amazing. And Kelly is who connected me with Katie. And so I want you to hear kind of how that friendship formed because it was really formative for you, right? Oh, it was, it really was kind of life changing because I was on the dance team at the University of South Carolina. And a lot of what was happening during that time was kind of people were rushing sorority and finding their groups. And so there was an element for sure of loneliness, you know, for me, but I kind of was right on the same path as high school. I was walking around barefoot in the campus, smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Like, you know, I was really just, you know, took me with me to um, college. And then I, um, I overheard a group of girls on my hall. Kelly was one of them talking about going to fellowship of Christian athletes. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, I'm an athlete now since I'm on the dance team, obviously. <laughs> so mm. I, should, I should check this thing out. And I asked Kelly if I could go with her. And our funniest story is that to this day, she says, she does not remember this, but she believes me that she was like, well, you can follow us because I was crazy and she knew it. And she she didn't want to be seen with you. <laughs> this girl in my car. And I- <laughs> And so I went that night and honestly, the, the it was definitely a marking kind of spiritual moment in my life. Many people have heard about these moments of like spiritual transformation or, you know, getting saved and in, in the Christian faith. But really for me, that moment happened. It had to have been a spiritual, you know, spiritual moment because the, the pastor spoke just very clearly about this relationship with God that kind of demanded our life. And I had never heard it in that way before that he wanted to have that kind of relationship with us. Well, that night I ended up like on the floor of that gymnasium, giving my life over to the Lord. And really everything shifted for me from that moment on my hopes, my dreams. I just started that relationship with him and felt for the first time, these words of life and love being spoken over me. And so I did become friends with Kelly, you know, through that year. And Kelly and I actually became really close because she would be starting to go through a really hard time, you know, almost the next year. And so we forged our friendship then. And still, I just met with her last week. She was down in Charleston for her book signing. And it's just so sweet to have those 20 year long, you know, friendships of walking with each other through the highs and 
and lows of life. So yeah, she's a treasured friend for me for sure. Oh, I love that. And you are absolutely right. There is nothing like those old friends that kind of have grown up with you and seen you through all the things. I just got together with my high school friends. So I was remembering that same feeling of those deep friendships. So that's amazing. And not long after you meet Kelly and you, you know, become friends and everything, you also meet who would become your husband, Josh. What happened there? That's right. Actually, on a trip Kelly and I were on, I met um, my husband, Josh, and it was a week-long trip in Miami. So by the end of it, he's like professing his love. You know, I'm going to marry you. And I'm thinking, what in the world? <laughs> like <that's- laughs> um, you know, that we're going to date each other. But on honestly, almost a couple months later, we did start dating. And it was just the most incredible early romance years of falling in love and both of us um, being in love with Jesus. And so that bonded us together so much. And we were engaged about a year and a half later and we got married our senior year of college. So most of my college years, you know, were spent kind of growing up with Josh and him with me. And so we look back on that time just with such joy and wonder of you know, all God taught us and did in those years. It really was so incredible. But the other interesting thing about now in midlife, and I hope for those listening, like this may ring true for you too, but there was this season for us where the whole world was open to us. Our imagination was just huge of how we could use our gifts and impact the world around us. And what things we specifically liked. Like Josh and I, you know, we had these wild and fun things about us. Like we would go to IHOP until three and four in the morning and we would just have our Bibles out and we would tell people about Jesus. And we started this like IHOP Bible study with the wait staff and stuff like that. And, you know, those things were so unique to us, but things that made us feel alive. And the people that we love to hang out with. Well, now in midlife, we often talk about after, you know, gosh, we have lived a good amount of life and we have done more adulting, as you can imagine, with seven kids than we really ever thought (laughs) was going to come our way. And so we go back to those moments of, okay, what did we love to do together when we were 20? What, What were the dreams in our heart? And I think for people who are starting to try to figure out, you know, what do I want to dream about again? And what should I be doing with this season of my life? Sometimes it is so sweet to go back to those seasons where, you weren't quite as weighed down with responsibility and finances and debt and mortgages and all the kids' schedules, you know, to start to dream again about the things that you, you know, loved at, at one time. Oh my gosh, Katie, I love that. I love that you like chimed in to add that because I think it's so true that we like get bogged down by our responsibilities. We kind of forget our spirit. Dave Hollis actually asked this question once. I don't know if you know who Dave Hollis is, but he said something like, who were you before all your responsibilities? You know, and it's true, like kind of get back to that core of that person. And I think you're right. Midlife is a great time to remember the spirit of who you were in your 20s and in your younger self and try to get back to that that girl in some way, right? Right. Right. Okay. But just to back up to your story, because your story is so interesting and so layered, really. How old were you when you and Josh got married? Were you 18, 19? We were 21. I had just turned 21. So we got married in December and I had turned 21 in September right before we got engaged when I was 20. And then we actually got pregnant with our first daughter who's about to graduate four months after we got married. 
So that was a big life shift for us because we always wanted a big family. <laughs> I've told you that story how we wanted seven from our first date. But of course, we had no clue what that meant or how much work that was going to be. So that's a whole nother, a whole nother story. But we got pregnant with our first four months after we got married. So that was a big shift in our life because where the whole world felt so open to us for those couple of years, very quickly, it did not. And yeah, right. <laughs> people have been there before. Very quickly, it felt like, oh, we we need jobs, we need stability, you know, we need insurance, and so that that started to shift our life pretty quickly after we were first married. Well, and I know you talked about. So, how soon after you had your first? Because your first is a daughter, and then you had a, a second daughter pretty close thereafter, right? That's right. Yeah, we had my second daughter, Abigail. We had her four months after Anna Jay was born. So they're 16 months apart. And um, yeah, I was in my master's program for both of them. So we actually told our parents when we graduated from college, we told our parents on that Saturday with a cake that we were pregnant. (laughs) This is at our college graduation with my first. And my mom looked at me and was like, Katie, you're starting your master's program on Monday. And I was like, I know. And she's like, what is the plan for that? I was like, I don't know. We're going to do it. We're going to do the masters and the baby. That's the plan. (laughs) You know, I don't know. And then um, we had my second one while I was still in that program. And, and things definitely got really hard that second year, my master's program, you couldn't get a C in one single class. And my very first class, I got a B and um, it was a Maymester class. And they pulled me in to say, like, I don't think this program is for you. You know, you're pregnant. You've already gotten a B. And yeah, I don't know that you're going to be able to sustain 66 hours. And I guess I don't know if it was the early 20s, if it was the strong willed in me. But the minute someone told me I can't, it was like everything rose up in me to say, like, oh, I can and I will, you know, and I, my mom, again, being a single mom, she definitely lived a life of women's empowerment in front of me. And so she would always talk about confidence and the fact that I could do anything, but I I really had watched her live an incredible life and, you know, accomplish a lot. And so I think that was just inside of me that, yes, I wanted to be a mother, but I also had these dreams in my heart. And so my second daughter, when she was born, I was in the middle of an internship and what the internship happens in the master's program is you're full on counseling eight to four every single day. So I actually had my daughter over the weekend. And then on Monday, I went back into my internship and I had six different family members stay with her for the six weeks until I could complete it. Because at this point, you know, a one week old, a two week old, you can't have any kind of childcare. They're too little. And so that was really, really challenging finishing that journey. And I look back on that and don't know that I would ever do that again or recommend it to anyone. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, it it actually is kind of miraculous, really, because anyone listening that's a mom knows how you are literally living in the worst haze, blur, everything. Like you're in survival mode and then there you are like – I mean, you're not even healed and you're like back Absolutely. at it. Like that's Absolutely. crazy. <laughs> and again, I look back at it. I don't know that I would do it again. But I also think there is a certain grace for the season. You know, when I just had my last daughter at 40 – there is there is no way. I mean, I did I did I was such a different mom. I did the fourth trimester. I barely left the house. I did the placenta pills every day. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> I just really 
was able to rest and rest my body. And I was so thankful for that time, you know, to just, um, I feel like securely attached to her and to re reconnect with my body. So it was just a different, a different day. And I think for every woman in every season of life, there are certain graces and things that sustain you that you look back on it and think, how did I do that? I do not, I don't know. I don't know how, how I did that. Well, I think it's it, – and I actually said this to Kelly in talking about her story too. Like there's something about like you just rise to the occasion when they're, you know, when they're presented to you. You just somehow do it. And when you look back, you go, gosh, I can't believe I did that. But you – in that moment, you kind of have no choice, right? You were already so committed to your program. You were like, I am going to get through this. Um, so – and I think it's a testament probably to just all the amazing things you've been able to accomplish really since. So, okay, you graduate from your master's, you have your two daughters, and then you end up having a third child. How much like after that? Well, we actually, we had a couple of miscarriages after the girls and, and then we had my son. And so by the time we had my son, we were about, we had been married about six years. So I guess I was probably around 26, 27. And, you know, this is where our story took a big turn because um, our marriage, it's a, a probably a whole podcast in itself. But if any of you have followed my husband and I on anything social or heard us speak, um, we do a, a good amount of marriage content and conferences, but it all just comes out of the pain, especially the pain of this one specific season when, you know, what's happened is I'd got my master's. My husband had gotten a seminary degree, which was at his master's. We're both working full time at this point. By the time we were 26 or 27, I'm pretty sure we had like four or five properties, different houses. What we would do is we'd buy a house, renovate it, and then um, move to the next house and rent it out. And our kind of financial plan with him being a pastor was we're going to sell these houses and pay for our kids' college one day. We had gotten to the point where we had effectively run out of every bit of margin that we had in our life. We're both working full time, two young kids at home. Now I'm pregnant. And we ended up selling all of the properties and moving to kind of what we would have said was like our dream house, you know, in this season in our 20s. And when we moved there, we also were friends with a couple that lived in our neighborhood. And long, long story short, I ended up having an emotional affair that I confessed to my husband. And it was awful. I can't even begin to describe the season that we went into after what I thought would be a confession that happened on our couch that ended up very public, very quickly. And Josh was asked to resign from the church that he was working at. And so this led us to just a huge turmoil in our marriage. And I honestly, to this day, don't know if we would have left Columbia, even though we didn't love that city. We didn't love being there. But we, like I told you, as soon as we got pregnant, adulting and responsibility and you know, being planted just happened for us very quickly. And it happened before we really knew what we even wanted. If I could, you know, say that because we were so young at, at 21. And so from that point on, our, that that's where our story like really shifted was during, you know, the pain and the broken parts of that season when my, my, when my son was born. Well, and I just imagine, you know, your husband has committed to being in the seminary. You know, you guys have been a part of this church. So not only are you having this like 
chasm and this deep hurt in your marriage, but like you must have felt such a sense of betrayal from the church that they turned their back on you in the time that you probably needed them the most. And I can imagine how that was such a pivotal point for you. You know, it's so interesting because we we look back on it. I never left that season with any kind of like church hurt that I processed. I mm-hmm. um, I felt such shame in that moment that anybody else's judgment, condemnation, honestly, I think I welcomed it because I was so full of my own sense of shame. Now, looking back on that, I can see how unhealthy, you know, that was. We did have other pastors in the area that, you know, loved us, that even one pastor that paid for counseling for us um, from another church. So, you know, we we received love in that moment through people in the church, in the body of Christ, but our specific church definitely, definitely, you know, was like, don't come back. And I have processed that later after coming out of that season of shame of just, you know, how hurtful that is, especially like I said, with my story and my dad leaving, you know, I think one of my core issues that I've had to continue to get healing from is abandonment. And I will say that if, you know, if I could think on anything over time that I didn't understand in my twenties and my thirties, it was that my mental and emotional and physical health, you know, would have a limit to my spiritual growth and development. If I didn't handle the issues of my past, um, the ways that I was being triggered and how I was reacting out of those things or not reacting to them, you know, those things do come to play. You can only stuff your issues for so long. And so I just meet with so many people now and tell them like, you know, I really do wish, especially in the church, I don't know that we always do a good job of that, of telling people that, you know, there are things that you're going to need to handle, that you're going to need to get counseling from, that you're going to need to be able to expose those wounds and, and receive healing, you know? And so I definitely think that was at play for me. And when we moved to Charleston, we were Um, loved so well by the church we're at now. And that was 14 years ago. You know, so the other thing that's been healing has been watching people, you know, actually love us in our brokenness. And that that's a really important part of the Christian faith. And I think, you know, sadly, we don't always represent that as Jesus people. And that that breaks my heart, you know, when we don't represent his love and grace and mercy, which is, you know, why he came. So, it definitely, um, I have felt that, you know, from the church the past 14 years. But yeah, I'm so thankful you bringing that up because there there definitely are wounds. And there's so many people probably listening that have been wounded by someone that claimed to be a Christian or by someone in authority or a pastor, church member. And it is so important that we just expose that and address it and, and work with it so that it doesn't limit us, you know, and our relationship with the Lord. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I do think that, you know, and I know you and I kind of talked about this offline too of this, like, especially when you are in a a position of being kind of the face of the church, you are, you know, a pastor, a pastor's wife, that there is this expectation that you are perfect, but you're very much human. And so, you know, there, there is this need to be vulnerable so that your people in your church and in your community can feel like they can also be real and vulnerable and not strive to be perfect because you're not perfect. None of the people in the, you know, the clergy or anything like that are perfect. And that that's such an important thing to just kind of take note of. 
That's right. It, it is. I, I am so passionate about that. No pretending, no posturing, no putting yourself on a, a platform or letting other people do it because it is damaging one to the pastor or leader's soul. It's damaging to their mm-hmm. soul. And I think we're seeing a lot of leaders in the church fail, burn out, all of those things because they're allowing you know, even others to put them in that position and them not remember their own humanity, their own brokenness, their own need for the Jesus that we're sharing, you know, but also number two, it's not healthy for the people listening or watching to think that there is any kind of level of perfection that they're supposed to be striving towards, you know, to not realize that their journey where they are with the Lord, they are never loved anymore and they're never loved any less. And they were created so uniquely and by such design on purpose by him, even with their brokenness, even with, you know, the parts of their kind of shadow self that we say, or the things that they might not want to expose to everyone. He loves those things. Mm -hmm. He loves those things about us, you know? And so I just, I do think it's really, really an important distinction that we need to make, especially as leaders in the church. Yeah. It's hard to do sometimes. It's hard to, hard to stay broken and vulnerable, but it's definitely the best way to live. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just getting back to your story, I know you mentioned to me that when you guys left Columbia and headed to Charleston, you actually weren't even sure you were going to work again in a church, that Josh got a job at an orphanage and you were counseling at a jail. So when did it, like, when was the turn that you were like, no, you know, we're going to go back to being more of a face at a church? We actually were, we were at Seacoast Church, the same church that we're at now, and we were just attending. And we had found an incredible family at Mac and Cindy Lake that we were just kind of learning under. They were counseling us each night. And, um, and not each night, each week we were going yeah. to the place. Thankfully it wasn't each night. They probably would have um, hated that because we ever, we already stayed way too long. You know, we, we were fighting in front of them, all the things to kind of rehabilitate. But once we had been serving in that church, we did this huge play. If you remember those plays that they used to do um, about Jesus and the crucifixion, it was called The Thorn. And they're actually still doing it at some churches. We just aren't doing it at our church anymore. But we were um, in this play. I was dancing and my husband, they asked him to play Satan, which is hilarious. He is not an actor, but he does have some swag about him. He had to just basically walk around like swaggy, like, and um, he had to shave his head and wear a skirt. Like this character wore like this weird skirt thing. And he just remembers it. And he tells the funniest story of like, literally, you could not have got any lower. My wife didn't think she loved me. I have no more job. I'm staying at home with our kids because he's working at the orphanage at night. So I can work at the jail during the day. So he's staying at home with three kids. And he's like, they asked me to shave my head and wear a skirt. And I'm like, you know what? Honestly, at this point in life, what do I have going for me? Like, I'll do it. And um, he is not theatrical. I mean, just, I just can't like looking back on it. But during that time, it really was like just a sweet thing God used because he got to be really good friends with a lot of the staff, you know, and saw that these people were the real deal. Like they were who they said they were, not just you know, from the stage, but behind the scenes. And we would leave all the time thinking, oh my gosh, these people are the real deal. Like they love the Lord, but they're just human and kind and humble, you know? And so at the end of that play, they asked my husband to come on staff in children's ministry. 
And at this point, that's the farthest thing from what he would have wanted to do as a pastor too, was, um, you know, maybe when we first started, but now that we had three kids of our own and, you know, he had been at another church, but he honestly just knew like, this is what I'm supposed to do is just to be in this incredible church. And so we really prayed about it for, you know, for a while and he, um, took the job there and that was 14 years ago. And his role has changed about 14 times in those 14 (laughs) years, you know, but um, we're still there serving at Seacoast and really thankful to do it. So, you know, feel so loved there. That's amazing. And I think, you know, you've really talked about being able to not only repair your marriage, but really have a thriving marriage. And what do you think are some of the secrets that allowed you to do that? Well, I'll tell you the the number one thing that we have kind of rebuilt on. Now, I'm going to tell you, you, of course, when there's betrayal or hurt, a lot of the rebuild when you're coming from a place of rubble is just rebuilding trust. And what happened for us is through that season, we started what we called confession therapy, where we just started giving each other our 10. So I'd be like, can I tell you something hard? Can you handle this? He would tell me things that were hard because I wasn't the only one hiding. He had been hiding things too, just not quite the betrayal (laughs) that I had been hiding. But so we started to learn to get real vulnerable and real, real with each other. And it was painful for me to say things like, you know, I don't feel this way that I used to feel for you anymore. I would bring him journals of when we were 18, 20, where I'm calling him like schnooky boo-boo, you know, and I'd be like, (laughs) I don't feel like this. Can you honestly tell me you feel like this about me? And he would say, Katie, I'm asking you to go to a new place, a deeper place of love. And I could not fathom that. You know, I never had seen that before. And I really didn't understand the kind of endurance it would take to do that. But I remember committing kind of, God, you can have my feet. My heart is still with another man potentially, or just at this point, I had realized that I, that what I thought was love was actually self-love in the affair. So Mm -hmm. I knew that, okay, this is not real love. This is just self self self-love. And I was committed to staying But I really thought if I just stayed and stuck it out, we would be like pals. I did not think we would have a thriving marriage like we have now. So I just say that to anybody who is in the lowest point of their life. The points or tips that I give, it did not feel like that. It felt like sticking, you know, just staying through a season that was really, really traumatizing in a lot of ways. I would close my eyes and I was grieving, but I was just, I would just close my eyes. I want to be anywhere else except for in my home, in my body, in my marriage, you know? And so it did take some endurance to kind of stay through the rubble of rebuilding trust, you know, rebuilding connection when you've had a deep betrayal like that. But once we did that, we had someone tell us, um, you know, one time Katie and Josh, One of your issues is you need to be at a 10, your connection, your partnership, and everyone else needs to be at a two. And I remember thinking like, even our kids, even my mom, even my family members at a two, my girlfriends at a two, there is no way. There is absolutely no way. And that's how I felt in the moment when I heard that. But looking back over the past 14 years, what happened in the rebuild is we truly did go from a 10, the two of us, to everybody else being at a two. And a a healthy two where we really love them, love people. (laughs) You know, (laughs) our bond is something so different. And we have just 
prioritized that bond, that time with each other, the, you know, trying to give him my best energy, serve out serving each other, giving him words of life, taking him off the hook for things, not, not making him feel like he had to, he was responsible for all of my happiness. You know, that was a big learning curve for me to realize that he is not responsible to meet all of my needs or to meet all of my happiness. But we, as we both find this security in God, love from God, then we can, you know, have this bond that's stronger together. So the practical things for us around that is just dialogue daily. Every day we try to connect, you know, texting each other, telling each other the good things of the day, the hard things of the day. And then at night, we try to walk our dogs together each night to just have this moment to say, how are you feeling? How have you processed the day? Did anything, you know, trigger you or hurt you today? And um, just last night, I had felt this rejection from some of my friends um, by just a small thing, you know, that things that we all have where you see that there's some somewhere you're not. And just to be able to tell my husband that, like, gosh, this really made me feel I don't, some kind of way. I don't even know how I've processed it all yet, but I just want you to know, like, I felt hurt by this. And for me to tell him that and him to be able to say, you know, I I can understand that. I can see where that would be hurtful and him to pray with me, you know, simple things, but it's really what makes the foundation of this covenant strong. And then each week we try to date night and that's where we do, you know, we have the little date night live um, that we do on our Instagram, but that just comes from a place of, we ask one good question on date night that you can ask with your, with your spouse. But that just comes from us really carving out this place to be fun, to be free, to dream together again, to ask a fun, light question, you know, not always like, where am I screwing up or how do I need to be better? But just a fun, free question of, of learning more about each other. And then um, we try to get away once a quarter. And that is so challenging with all of our kids and in this season of life. But I think it's also when it's the most important, you know, to carve that time out and just, even if it's just a couple of nights going to stay downtown somewhere or, um, you know, sending the kids off and just having a weekend, just being able to have that time where you're not parents and, you know, not even teammates trying to handle all your responsibility, but just to enjoy each other, to get back to those places of reconnection. So those practical things have really helped us, you know, kind of rebuild. But to for me to say, like, my marriage is the best part of my life just is a miracle, a miracle work of God, I have to say, <laughs> from where we came from, you know. That's so amazing. And I hope inspirational for people listening because I think midlife is a particularly hard time in marriage because most people have had long marriages. And like you said, maybe they don't feel, you know, really romantic about their husband anymore. Maybe they are just managing their lives or their kids' schedules. I think there's a lot of that. And I think also, you know, use the word endurance. And I think that's such a good word, like the endurance you need for a long-term marriage. One of the women that I interviewed recently, Erin, she talked about the crests in your marriage, that your marriage has these highs and lows and that you, you know, you ride them. And I think those are such important things. And I love that you say, like, you can get back to feeling excited about your husband and romantic about your husband. Like there are ways. And that, you know, look at you've been together since you were basically kids and you're still asking each other questions that you don't know the answer to. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I love that tip. Will you just tell everyone, because you called it the three Ds. Will you just repeat what those three Ds are? Because I think everyone listening who is married can really benefit from that. 
Yes, absolutely. So it's dialogue daily, date weekly, and then depart quarterly. I love it. And you're right. You have, you know, since you told the story of kind of the the big bump in your marriage, you have had four more kids. So you have seven kids. And I'm sure there are probably not many if nobody listening has that many kids. And so I think, you know, if you even just think about, well, I have three kids, like how hard it is to, like you said, carve out a date night, go away. But the value in it and remembering how the foundation of your marriage, the being a 10 in your marriage, sets the tone for all the other relationships in your life. Yeah, that's right. And we have walked with so many couples that every season can be really challenging to have a date night. When you have littles, it's expensive. You know, you have to have a sitter, then you're trying to spend the money on date night when you're trying to also build the financials of your marriage. You know, it's expensive. When you have the middle school and high school, there's so many activities. And then there is some alone time, I think, if you don't have littles and middle and high schoolers where the husband and wife are driving to sports games or they're able to kind of get away to have dinner with friends sometimes. But those couples struggle to say, no, we're putting our marriage as a priority. You know, when we're carving out this time that's just us, that we're bonding together on these certain date nights. And then when you're empty nesters and you're home every night, it's so hard to say like, tonight's the night where, you know, we're going to do something special. We're going to make it a night, you know, to really bond and connect. So truly, I think in every season, there are things coming against you to make your marriage a priority. I've seen it, felt it, and we've walked with so many couples. And so I just would remind all couples that you have an enemy. Your marriage has an enemy and the enemy of your soul does not want it to be thriving. It does not because it is such a safe, secure place, not only for you, but potentially for your children if you have those for generations. And so it's worth protecting and in really fighting to protect it. And you've, you know, you talked about, you mentioned briefly that you guys have counseled, I think you said hundreds of couples in their marriages. You know, if people were wanting to connect with you on, you know, I know you said you've done, you know, marriage events and things like that. Where would they find you? Where would they find your church and in in you guys? Well, right now the best place is probably on Instagram, just Katie Walters, Josh Walters. But in the next couple months, I don't know when the podcast comes out, but we have a website launching that will just be joshandkatiewalters.com because we are um, writing a book. We just got a, a, a publishing deal with W Publishing Company that comes out January 2024. So, you know, you'll be able to find more content a little bit easier in the next in the next several months on marriage. Um, but right now, probably Instagram is is the best place. I love that you are writing a book. And I love that you said like it's 2024 because I think it's so important for people to realize like that's how long and how hard it is to write a book, right? Like it's two right. years from now. <laughs> the craziest part is we started working on the, you know, the the proposal almost two years ago. So <laughs> I think people definitely, you know, Talk about endurance takes definitely takes some endurance. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. And tell us the name of the book. The name is New Marriage, Same Person. So a lot of the concepts that we've just been talking about of how do I get to a new place in my marriage, you know, with the same person, with the person that I'm with currently. And some people, it, that might be those first years of marriage, you know, the first year one through six for us just shocked us at how difficult it was from going from this 
you know, concepts of dating and what you think marriage is going to be like. And then all of a sudden you get hit with how it actually feels. Or it could be in our story where, you know, you've been married for several years and there's been a major point of betrayal or hurt and you're having to get back to a new place or even just where we are now, which is, okay, we want a thriving marriage. We want to, we want to keep making it fresh and keep making it new. We don't want roommates. We don't want to just um, be surviving together, you know, and we can see a lot of our friends where the kids are, we're coming on the years where they are moving out, they're leaving. And you don't want to be left there with somebody who's not like the thrill of your life, you know? And so um, it's just very practical, hopefully helpful, like your friend talking to you of just some, some ways that we can have this newness in our marriage. I love that. And, you know, it's going to be a while before people can read these words of wisdom. So if you had to say something to a woman that's listening right now that feels hopeless or alone in her marriage, what would you say? Well, I would just say one, you're, you are not alone. And There are so many marriages that have hit these points, really low points. In fact, I have to tell you, while I had the most incredible counseling when we were at our low point, one of the things this woman told me was, I mean, honey, I don't know. Me and my husband have just always been best friends. And I remember thinking, oh God, (laughs) that is not how I feel. You know, (laughs) That is the opposite of how I feel. And so I would just speak to that person who feels hopeless to say you are not alone and I have been there. And the thing that I love and treasure now is having felt those feelings that, you know, love felt so far from what I would describe. I didn't want to go on a date night because I didn't really want to spend that much time with my husband. I I couldn't have imagined what was possible for God if I would really give him this area give him my heart and us both start to work on these things together. And it wasn't fast. It wasn't a quick fix. Nothing is a quick fix, but I I truly know down to my, you know, soul down to my feet that if you will commit this area over to God and you and your husband, you and your wife will commit to, to working, to rebuilding. It can be the most incredible, thrilling, satisfying relationship, the one it was intended, it was intended to be. I love that. And I appreciate that. And I also appreciate just how honest that you're being that, because I think there are a lot of people listening that are like, yeah, I don't know that I really want to spend that much time with him or her. But that's such an important piece to be like, no, just know there is hope. And so I appreciate that. And I just want to point out something that you said to me in our call, because I think people should hear this is, and it's just kind of funny. You were like, if you imagine the woman that has seven kids, you know, that's the, the church going woman with has seven kids. You said, you're not that person. <laughs> oh gosh, no. And that's the great thing. I mean, most people have no concept because they're like, I don't even know what in the world would seven kids entail. But yeah, the, the homeschool mom, the kids that are all obeying that, you know, she's a great cook, homemaker. That is not me. That is 100% not me. My kids are all in school. Life feels chaotic oftentimes. And um, I really don't feel like I have any skills in the kitchen, which (laughs) I cook a lot, but I don't know that it's good. And I promise you when my kids leave, nobody's talking about mom's famous recipe of anything. (laughs) (laughs) I love that because I do think people hear like, okay, you know, here you are speaking about your church. You're speaking about your seven kids. They're like picturing, you know, the woman in the prairie dress with like all the kids in the prairie dresses. And like, 
Yeah. I can't wait for people to go and look at your website and you are like gorgeous and sexy and like modern woman. You're not at all what I think people imagine. And so I love that. I love that your story is so unique and that you are so genuinely you. You know, you are also still your rebel spirit. Yeah. And that you can be both. You can be both steady and the rebel spirit at the same time. I love that. Oh, that's so encouraging. Thank you for saying that. It's true. I, I do think I do think that that's that that is true. And that's where even you know I talk about my dad leaving when I was six, but the truth is he's lived in other countries my entire life, and it gave me a worldview and a passion that I am so thankful for. And that's the wild thing about our stories, as you know, even our hurts, even our pain, we can watch God use you know, in good ways when we look for the good in it. And so thank you for saying that. I, I do feel that way. Well, and that kind of is a good segue to this next question I wanted to ask you and talk to you about. And that's that you said you just always, I mean, you and Josh both always had this vision that you were going to live abroad, that you were going to be missionaries, that you were going to have this global life. But, you know, seven kids and jobs and all the things later, that never happened. But you know, fairly recently, you did get to go on a mission and it kind of changed the course of your life yet again. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, um, yes, again, that's a, the backstory is we really thought we we're going to live overseas and be missionaries. And then as I told you guys, you know, we got pregnant quickly, started working in the U.S. and thought that dream was dead. And I would often say, why did you put these dreams inside of me, you know, to be a missionary? And I would never go on a mission trip for 10 more years after college. But in 2017, I got the opportunity to go to Togo, West Africa, and was actually going to lead a counseling trip, which I did lead the next year. And so I was just kind of going to vision cast of what will this look like when we bring in all these pastors and their wives and do counseling and basically ask them questions to let them expose themselves, their hurts, habits, things like that. But during the course of the time, there were a lot of business leaders there talking about sustainability and businesses and global markets. And all of that just made sense to me that these incredible people needed space in the global market. And so when I got home, I started having dreams about these skirts. I could see the name, Francis and Benedict, the skirts that we could sell here and use the profits to impact them in Togo, West Africa. So again, long, long story short, we started in 2017. We took like 400 pre-orders is how we did it. And, and then we employed three women out of Pastor Francis and Benedict's home. So that's another part of the story is that those are real people that it was named after them. And when I started dreaming about it and could see the name, that became really helpful because then I knew who we were supposed to partner with, you know, in Togo. And so we started employing the three seamstresses out of their home and that's grown. And now we have um, 13 seamstresses. And we have advocates who share the story and sell these skirts all over the U.S. And we always need more. If anyone listening is wanting to have a part-time job that's flexible, they can do from their home in selling these beautiful skirts and also, you know, have this um, purpose and mission in their life to, to see women and their children come out of poverty. And we, we believe it's a multi-generational work. It's going to take decades, but we really are seeing so much change, life change for these women in Togo to, to have this incredible job and all the job supports that the skirts provide. 
I just like there's so many things I want to say in in response to this. And one is that, you know, I've gone to Guatemala seven times and every time I go, I think to myself, I'm going to come home and I'm going to do these things and I'm going to be different and I'm going to make a change and I and I come home and I go back to my life. So like for you to go and then really make it happen, like that's so incredible and I think it goes back to the same spirit of the girl that was like three days after you're giving birth was showing up for your internship. Like you are the person that makes things happen. And I think that's amazing. And also, I cannot wait for people to go and check out these skirts. They are so unique and so incredibly beautiful. In fact, I got to notice that my skirt it has been shipped. So I cannot wait for it to come. And I will take a picture of myself in it so that everyone can see it. But in the meantime, why don't you tell everyone your website? It's just francisandbenedict.com. If you go to francisandbenedict, B-N-E-D-I-C-T, Dot com. You'll see all the skirts. We have a new collection that's launching in, in the middle of June with some new products that are going to be exciting. We've made Ooh. a version of the same skirt three or four links for about seven years. So it's a really exciting time in the company because this summer we have a new product coming. This fall we have some new products coming. We've tried to move at the right pace you know, for the seamstresses because them learning to make things in the exact same size across the board with excellence has definitely been an adventure. You know, every skirt is handmade and really one of a kind. And so um, there's no factory system to it, which is why in America we, you know, we have sizes, extra small, small, medium, large. If you walk into our shop in Togo, they could make you anything you wanted that day just by looking at you and taking your measurements. They are so gifted at that. But the, you know, geometry and patterns of making this same thing in the same size, which is what it takes to, to sell, you know, in the global market, that's been a big learning curve and they have risen to the occasion time and time again, they have learned and grown so much. So that's why we've really made the same skirt for so long so that we could really employ um, the women that we wanted to, you know, women that were single mothers, single providers for their home widows in places, you know, kind of a destitute. And now they're ready to start to make new things. So it's an exciting time for our company for sure. And would love for y'all to check it out, francisandbenedict.com. Well, and I hope that people will go to your um, Francis and Benedict Instagram too, because yeah. these skirts, they're really like statement pieces. They're so cool. And somehow I asked you about the shirts because there's, you know, all the models are wearing these cool, unique shirts um, yeah. because my girlfriend sent me a message after I sent her the link being like, you need one of these skirts. And she said, oh, and I also want the shirts. But you were like, no, we like handpicked those from Amazon and all these different places. But I think when you look at the Instagram, you're going to be inspired by these cool, just amazing outfits. And so I hope you do all go check it out. But Katie, there's one last question I want to ask you. And I think it's really important because it would have been easy for you at this stage in your life. You know, you're 40 years old. You have a baby and you have a daughter leaving for college. You have all the kids in between there. You are busy in your church. You are busy in your life. You know, but somehow you said, I have this other dream and I'm going to reach for it. What would you tell a woman that's listening that has had a dream that she basically has just kind of said to herself, that ship has sailed? Hmm. Well, that's such a good question because when I started Francis and Benedict, I really didn't think that I needed to. My life was already full and, you know, I definitely loved what I was doing at the church. But looking back on it, 
I know that I did need it. You know, I there because that seed had been planted in my heart specifically, getting this work out of me became like worship. It has grown me. It's stretched me. I've needed the tears, the challenges, the what are we going to do now, the problem solving, the passion, you know, that has the flame that's just been able to stay fanned. And so I would just tell any woman that has a dream in your heart to to not wait to do the next right small thing, you know, to get it started and um, to trust that getting that work out of you is actually going to be really important for you also, you know, and, and so that, that's kind of my biggest piece of advice, something that I didn't think I needed, but I'm so grateful for. And I've watched the women who work with me, you know, my staff team, the advocates, they would all say the same thing. You know, they had full lives, full plates, but actually taking this step and doing this that they felt like they were being called to do has really changed them. It's given them a sense of purpose, connection, passion, you know, that is so important to all of our lives. We are so much more than just our responsibilities, our work, our mothering, you know, we we actually are um, whole beings in ourselves, and we have to listen to the, the still small voices in our heart, you know, about what, what we need to accomplish. I love that. And I just really think that there are a lot of women in midlife that they just want to feel passion and excitement again about their lives. And so I love that you're like, listen to that little voice that's still there and, you know, treat yourself like the individual human being that you are in addition to all your responsibilities. So Katie, it has been such a beautiful conversation, such an inspirational conversation. And I am so thankful that you took time away from your ridiculously busy life to talk to me today and to talk to everyone listening. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was such a joy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, And thanks to all of you for tuning in. If you can so generously go and leave a review on the podcast, I would appreciate it more than you know. The more reviews there are, the easier it will be for people to find this podcast. And the more women that join in on this conversation, the fuller it will be. Have a beautiful day, my friends. I am thankful for you. Goodbye. Goodbye.